gang, this episode of the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast is brought to you ad-free by our friends at Purina Institute. Gang, if you haven't checked out Purina Institute in a while, you definitely should because one, they have fan-freaking-tastic educational resources over there and two, they just released their handbook of canine and feline clinical nutrition and they're giving it away for free. That's right. You can head over to Purina Institute or I'll put a direct link down in the show notes. Just go grab yourself a copy. Guys, this is a massive, awesome resource. Um, I have interviewed a number of the authors of different chapters uh, recently in the podcast and, and they're putting those episodes out and they, they're really good. So anyway, guys, this is a great resource, totally free for you. Why would you not have it for yourself, for your practice? Check it out. Link in the show notes. Gang, let's get into this episode. This is your show, we're glad you're here, we want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Allison Manchester. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. I am so glad to have you on uh, on the podcast. For those who don't know you, you are a boarded internal medicine specialist, veterinary internal medicine specialist. Uh, you did your residency at Colorado State, where you are doing a postdoctoral fellowship right now in One Health. Your area of expertise is gastrointestinal immunology. You study I, like things like IBD uh, in dogs and cats. Um, I'm, okay, good. I'm not oversimplifying. Great. Yep. <laughs> you you have you have a book chapter in the new Purina Clinical Nutrition Handbook that's coming out, and um, I think that you are. Uh, I think you're an interesting person, and <laughs> I have a case that I wanted to ask you about. Is that okay? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, cool. So, um, so you study, you know, uh, IBD. Uh, uh, I, I love the the immunology com- uh, component of of gastroenteritis, things like that. So, I, I have a case. Let me just start out wide. Um, I have a German Shepherd, a three year old German Shepherd named Puccini. Um, his owners we'll call him uh, call him Pucci, and uh, he is he presented with soft stools for about three days he's kind of you know he he had he'd been out he'd been on a walk he'd had some soft stools things like that and then this morning he's come back and, and he he ate breakfast and then and then he vomited about you know two three hours after breakfast and and the owners are, are are bringing him in they're kind of having the stress thing because they're like we're moving we've got the house in boxes is he going to be throwing up the whole way yeah it's it, it's really that and so they've come in and they're kind of like question one is why is this happening question two is what do we do about it is this is this something that that's going to going to be a problem and so anyway I know I know a lot of people see these cases I always like to make sure that I'm doing the best that I can do. Uh, Allison Manchester, how do you treat that? Yeah, so that is just like a classic constellation of signs that we see on the clinic here day in and day out. And, you know, not that we have a one-size-fits-all approach, but there are some commonalities in terms of looking at these types of patients and next steps. So typically as an internal medicine person, um, you know, trying to be methodical and slow, and it actually is really important to get the full picture. So you know, what? what is Puccini's bigger story? We're going to hear these details about the kind of presenting complaint. What was in the vomitus? Um, anything changing in his environment? Yeah, we already know his house is in disarray. Um, that's going to impact a lot of dogs, especially ones that are a little kind of more on the anxious spectrum. But yeah, I really want to delve into that um, kind of acute history. And then what is Puccini's bigger picture? Is he a dog that struggles with these things? Is he a dog that's been completely fine and this hit him totally out of the blue? 
Um, so yeah, I always tell our students here at CSU, you know, in medicine patients, we really get about 80, 90% of our kind of clinical reasoning picture from that history and the physical exam. We can do other diagnostics on top of that, but we're going to have a really good idea of which way we're going to go, which path we're going to take just based on a good history and a physical exam. So you you mentioned, I know it's cone of safety here, but you mentioned like vomitous composition. Like what is, is, it? What is it? What do, what am I looking for? I mean, other than the obvious of is this regurgitation or is this vomit? Like like are there, are there specific things that that are indicators to you where you say, well, I really want to know about this or this is going to guide me in a different way? Like help help me just get my head around that. Make sure I'm not missing something. No, yeah, great question and super important to take the step back and try to discern is it regurgitation or vomiting and. Um, that isn't always the easiest thing to do, but a lot of owners will just say blanket vomiting and then you delve in. Was it more passive? Was there an abdominal component? Um, did he seem surprised by it just coming out of his mouth? But once we have that material that comes out looking at it and you know, everyone always has their phone attached to them now, so often I'll get pictures sent to me, but kind of hints, what might I think? So would be interesting to me, she said he vomited about three hours after breakfast. Was it mm-hmm. undigested kibble? That's making me think more of a delayed gastric emptying, or maybe it actually was regurgitant. Is it just kind of, you know, foamy saliva and grass? Okay, he's not feeling well for some reason. People always ask me, why do dogs eat grass? I'm not sure. Don't think I'm going to answer that with my PhD, but I generally take it as a sign that they're not feeling well. Otherwise, kind of more red flags would be, is there blood? Is it bright red? Are there coffee grounds, black blood clots? Um, That's going to be a big red flag in my head and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, investigate this patient a bit further. Um, Do I think this is some impending hemorrhagic gastroenteritis type thing? Another thing, you know, thinking of my parents' golden retriever, is there a foreign body? Is there a sock in the vomitus? Yeah. At least for dogs. And then for cats, again, is it kind of undigested kibble? Was there a big, massive hairball in there? And again, presence of blood, I'm going to be a little more intensive in my workup and attention to that case. So your expertise is in sort of chronic conditions, it, it seems, and everything that I've, that I've seen from you. Talk, talk to me, I know this, I didn't lay this in this case, but talk to me a little bit about, about how chronicity plays into your approach. Like, when do you start reaching for more advanced diagnostics, things like that? If, is it, uh, let's say that I have Poochie, let's say the Poochie comes back in three months and we've had another episode of some soft stools and some vomiting. Are you still going to be like, nah, it's been three months, let's patch him up again. At what point do you start to say, hey, I, I think, I think there may be more of a reason to to dig deeper here. So walk me through your thought process uh, in that regard, if you don't mind. Yeah, that's a, another great question because I think a lot of these patients, when we look back retrospectively, you start looking at the medical records you're like, oh, this really is more of a pattern. These aren't these just one-off things. And I'm probably a little biased because the ones that make it to see me at Colorado State are those ones that it's become more and more frequent. But if we look at, you know, the textbook would say it's a chronic condition when it happens for greater than three weeks duration. However, we know just like in people, so many of these signs are not necessarily horrible every day for three weeks, but maybe they have two bad days every two weeks. To me, when I start seeing that more than a few days every month is characterized by some frustrating and potentially worrisome GI signs, that's when I'm really saying, I think this is something longer term that instead of kind of being reactionary, 
Could we do something more proactive, like a diet change, other management changes to potentially prevent those recurrent episodes? That makes sense. That might all be related. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Can you uh, can we sort of turn to the left for a second and you can show me your toolbox um, as far as like the diagnostics and how you start to work these cases out and maybe just start to lay out the, the tools that that veterinarians kind of have at their disposal from the from the first like, hey, let's just get a fecal examination, like like all the way up to biopsies and or beyond. Like like what, what are those tools that you kind of just start to lay out? And we're obviously not going to use them all in Poochie here, but just just so I can kind of see, like, how do you start to organize your um, your levels of intervention? Yeah, great question. So, and just interrupt me if I start getting in the weeds. But starting off, when I see the patient in the room, I'm going to say, "Do you, are you sick or are you well?" And that again, I'm going to make that decision based on my history and my physical exam. So, there's a lot of acute gastroenteritis patients. Kind of shockingly, when I think about how I would feel if I was puking and Yep. God, God forbid having diarrhea, but a lot of the patients, you know, wagging their tail, panting, they're not showing the, those obvious signs, those red flags, things like shock and obvious dehydration. So how are their CRT? How are their pulse quality? Um, a lot of these dogs are a little tachycardic in the clinic, especially cats as well, just due to stress. But I guess maybe a more objective thing to try to help make that distinction, sick versus well, degree of dehydration. Okay would be the body weight. So if you've seen this patient before, let's just check their weight. Are they down a keg and a half in that in Puccini? Oh, that makes me think maybe you did have a substantial degree of loss. So right there from my physical and body weight, I can get a pretty good kind of initial minimum database, especially in your outwardly well patient. I'm always going to give them a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, assuming there is some dehydration there. When the owner tells me, yeah, they vomited three times, they haven't been going to the water bowl, they had diarrhea. But in terms of next diagnostic workups, um, that really is kind of a fork in the road when sick versus well. If you have a well patient, you might be fine stopping at your physical exam. Maybe you have that fecal sample, submit that out for parasitology, realizing that most parasitic infections don't typically present with this like dramatic puke my brains out, have a lot of diarrhea sort of thing. Um, not wrong to look for parasitism, especially if the animal's not on preventatives and depending on where you live in the country. Not even wrong to prescribe some fenbendazole once they're eating again to deworm them. Right. But otherwise, yeah. So that's kind of our well patient. If you want to do a little something, but maybe not your full CBC cam, UA, x-rays, maybe you start with like a PCV total solids. Yeah. And maybe uh, urine-specific gravity. I find the USG is a really underutilized tool, but you know, you see that patient, you're a little worried but you see their PCV solids is kind of within range. Their USG is 1040. You're like, okay, your body is doing what it should do in the face Mm -hmm. of a little bit of dehydration. And uh, maybe I feel good sending them home with a bland diet, maybe a little um, subcutaneous fluids, depending on kind of how suspicious I am of a mechanical obstruction, Serenia injection might help them feel better more quickly. So those are the kind of things I'm thinking about if we're going down that well patient tract. If we have signs thinking this patient is actually, you know, starting to suffer and have some adverse consequences from these GI losses and kind of signs pointing that way would be blood in the vomit, potentially blood in the stool, though I think a little bit of blood, frank blood in the stool can be part of a run of the mill, quote unquote, colitis, gastroenteritis. Okay. 
But again, things we would think about, we do our physical exam. Ugh. Do we think those pulses are a little bit thready? Are they being more tachycardic? They look dumpy in the exam room. Then I'm really going to try to talk the owner into letting me do some diagnostics and kind of getting that minimum database of a CBC, chem, and a urinalysis, at least a UA, is going to be really important to help us say, you know, do we think this is, you know, the blood orb looks pretty normal and it's just probably going more towards that acute gastroenteritis, nonspecific versus, oh, you know, the bilirubin's a little elevated. They've got a real leukocytosis or even worse, a neutropenia. That's going to put me down more. Okay, there's probably something else going on and I need to look into that before I feel comfortable making a serious diagnostic or treatment plan for this dog. Again, I think sometimes it gets a little confusing with some of our um, clinicians here. How do we use imaging the best in yeah. these patients? And I think it's important to remember kind of our pros and cons of our x-rays and our ultrasound. Ultrasound is awesome. A lot of us have a machine right there. We stick the probe on. Ultrasound's friend is fluid. So we can see fluids really easily. We have free abdominal fluid. Okay. That's something we probably want to sample. That's going yep. down more of the more intensive workup. I'm a little worried about it. No free fluid. Okay. Feeling better. Realizing we haven't seen too much about our other kind of big kind of elephant in the room with these, especially vomiting patients being mechanical obstruction. And that's where x-rays are really our friend. Um, and gas is helpful with x-rays. Gas is our friend for x-rays. And we can kind of try to interpret that gas pattern to see how concerned are we for mechanical obstruction because that's again another big fork in the road can i manage this patient or do i need to call a someone who's much more skilled in the operating room and maybe giving serenian subcute fluids really could be contraindicated if they're truly vomiting because they ate that plastic toy and it's not going to come out on its own. I, I love this. This is so, such a simple distinction of, of x-rays love gas and, and ultrasound loves fluid. I'm like, oh, I mean, of course it does, but that just, I've never heard it just laid down like that. I really, I really like that. You, you've hit on this thing twice and I, I want to come back and sort of talk to you about it. Can, can you break down for me a little bit of your red light, green light on Serenia specifically? And, and we you know when I started out in practice, uh, Serenia was a new drug and I really got hammered over the head of, you know, you need to be really careful because if they have an obstruction and you give them this anti-nausea drug, you can really make things work. But, uh, Alison, I, I have not, knock on wood, I have not seen any problems in my clinical career. And again, and I'm not, I'm not saying I intentionally do this, but I have 100% given a dog Serenia and had them continue to vomit. And every mm -hmm. time that's happened, I've been like, that's it. He's obstructed. You need to come back mm -hmm. in. And I've been right. Like, if they keep throwing up, um, I worry that I've gotten a little bit, um, nonchalant i guess Where's about that? it like you know what if, he, if he's still if he's obstructing we give him serenia he's probably just going to keep throwing up and then we'll and then we'll know T talk to me about about that approach you know what are what is your red light green light because you've, you've mentioned it twice of being careful with this yeah i definitely kind of came into it and have that baseline similar approach with could it be contraindicated and we're masking the signs that would tell us this animal needs more attention um i would agree with you in my experience generally they're going to quote unquote vomit through serenia if it's yeah. a pathological obstruction and yeah do i do an x-ray on every single patient i give serenia that's vomiting no i don't um i'm completely honest no i, I love that you said that because that was that's where i was where i, I was wondering where we were going and i'm like i i do a lot of you know that it I, but i also love your distinction of, of is this sick or well and i'll say mm -hmm. well it seems well and, but she's vomiting 
I'm going to, I'm going to do this anti-nausea medication. I'm going to treat it outpatient, but I'm not taking an x-ray because she seems well. So I really like Mm -hmm. your distinction of that. Yeah. And I think it goes back to the patient too, like being on internal medicine. I do get to know my patients pretty well because I see them, you know, if I don't cure their disease, I end up seeing them a lot. But most owners have a pretty good sense. Like, is this a dog that just swallows things? What is its access to things? Are there kids in the house? Are there a lot of socks hanging around? You know, if it's like a 14-year-old, one of my patients I was talking to this morning, 14-year-old terrier who lives in his same house, he has no teeth. Do I really think he ate something and he's obstructed and that's why he vomited at midnight last night? No. So mom actually gave Serenia at 4 a.m. and <laughs> we're going to move forward. But yeah, kind of taking into looking at your patient, talking to the owner and just being honest with them. Say, you know, we're going to do this. There's a slight chance this could happen. I guess in that patient, you give Serenia, maybe they don't vomit, but they're still refusing to eat anything. And they just, you know, maybe they're drooling or, you know, lip smacking. Those are the ones I look at where I'm like, wow, maybe the Serenia really masked that kind of vomiting reflex, but there's still something going on. And maybe, you know, 24 hours you say, okay, sorry, you got to get x-rays now. Like we can't, we just have to check this box and make sure that's not what we're dealing with. Cause I have you know, you're always haunted by the cases that fooled you. Yes. Yeah. And I have had patients that we did the ultrasound, didn't see an obstruction. Then a week later, that turns out what it was. So, you know, you don't want to change your practice because of one patient, but at the same time, x-rays, they're pretty safe, a few hundred bucks playing the risks and benefits. If they don't kind of get better in that initial 24 hours, we rehydrated them. We feel like if it's an acute gastroenteritis, it should be better now. Okay, you've earned more diagnostics. I really loved how you kind of laid out the diagnostics. So this is this is really great. Let's let's pivot a little bit in the time we have left, and I want you to do this again for me with your treatment options, right? Start starting with just just very minimal uh, up to getting more aggressive. Help, help me figure out when you start to reach for uh, a prescription diet, for example. When do you reach for a probiotic? When do you start to reach for uh, you know metronidazole? If you if you do that, like 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 what are what are the other tools in your toolbox, and kind of how do you lay them out to kind of look at them and decide what you're going to do? Yeah, so I. Th- think a lot of times with these patients, less is more. And we can do a lot with kind of simple things. And if you can imagine, I maybe I anthropomorphize too much. But, you know, when you or I are feeling sick, whether we went out to a restaurant or picked up something from our kid or something like a lot of times the last thing you want to do is take anything by mouth. You know, we're going to start with these basic principles. So luckily with veterinary patients or kind of the challenge would be we can't always explain to them like, we're going to start off slow and just take small sips of water and chew on some ice cubes. Like, So we can kind of help them along, boost that hydration, which I think is always going to be our friend, sub-Q fluid. So that's often where I'm starting in these patients, realizing that if you talk to you know a criticalist, they might say, well, is this patient truly dehydrated? Mm-hmm. I would admit no. If a dog has functioning, cat has functioning kidneys, they only vomited a little bit, yeah, they're probably not profoundly dehydrated. However, I think kind of when patients are not feeling well, a little extra electrolytes, a little extra fluid can be our friend. So I'm often thinking, provided they don't have any massive contraindications to additional fluids, like they're about to break with congestive heart failure, um, I'm often thinking of subcutaneous fluids in these patients. It's easy to do. You can get them out the door. They're going to absorb that within the next 6, 12 hours, and hopefully that's going to kind of help put them on the path to recovery, even if they're not eating right away. Apart from fluids, I would say I often am recommending a bland diet in that initial period. And that is kind of tailored to the individual patient. So 
if the owners just want something easy and they can just go home, they've got a busy lifestyle. Yeah, I'll send them home with a few cans of something like Purina EN or Hills ID. Do we have exact, you know, studies to tell you which exact diet is best? Do we need to be low fat in the dogs? Not, we don't have any studies. I would say I typically err on the lower fat end for dogs. And possibly that's kind of coming from some rationale that is there a component of pancreatitis that low fat might mm-hmm. help with? Um, also, we know that lower fat, higher moisture fluids are going to clear the stomach more quickly. So hopefully, you know, they'll eat a little bit. It'll get moved on the direction it should go and that can make them feel better and make them want to eat a few hours later so recommending the owners do small frequent meals of something bland that can also be some boiled rice and chicken boiled lean beef or turkey and potato things like that of course we want to be careful feeding home prepared diets that are unbalanced for any extended period of time but really 24 48 hours Hopefully the nutritionists won't get mad at me for saying this, but <laughs> I'm really not worried about that. Um, and yeah. if it's, you know, I think it's, how do we tell if these animals are feeling better? Are they right. acting normal? The vomiting stopped. The stools might take a few days to normalize, but if the patient's not eating, I think that's a real sign that something's wrong. And if we can kind of jumpstart that appetite with something more enticing that's bland, like something home prepared, I think that's really helpful in a lot of cases. Well, the clients, the cl- there's an emotional component to it too, right? Yeah. Like they like they come in and they're like, I have been doing the chicken and rice. And like, I don't want to say that's a mistake or stop doing that. I, and they go, can I can I go along with this, at least in the short term, or have them start to mix another thing? So I, I like your 24, 48 hours. I go, okay, mm-hmm. this is, it's not hurting. It, you know, it lets them feel involved and, and, and we can we can work with this. So I, I, I like that you validated that. Yeah. And a lot of times, like you said, it is upsetting. Like it's upsetting to yourself vomit. So if you see your, you know, best yeah. friend like puking, you know, all throughout the night. Yeah, that's awful. You know how bad they feel. So um, if we can slowly reintroduce food and think about when you or I feel sick. Yeah, I'm not going straight back to, you know, Culver's and getting a milkshake and a burger. Like right. I'm going to start Oh, a piece of toast. How did that feel? okay, maybe a banana and just kind of take it stepwise. And then hopefully gradually we can reintroduce their diet, normal diet over a period of three to five days or something. Other kind of helpful things, again, we talked about Serenia a bit. I try to stay away from, you know, prolonged courses of Serenia because, you know, I want to see is the disease getting better or am I just sort of like shutting down the vomiting center? Have I really addressed something has the dog recovered on its own with time? Yeah. I honestly don't use a ton of other antiemetics. We do prescribe here in the hospital a lot of Ondansetron, um, which to me is a much better drug given injectably. Um, it has really poor bioavailability for dogs and cats given orally. So to me, I think it's pretty much a waste of money to send home in a pill form. If you really think you need that second antiemetic and the owner can give sub-Q injections, I suppose that could be it. But I would say in the vast majority of my patients, if an antiemetic is going to work, Serenia works quite well. Yeah. So we've been talking really a lot more about the vomiting side. The diarrhea is often what lasts longer and is more upsetting to owners, especially if, say, they live in a condo or an apartment or have a lot of carpet in their house. So what can we do there? I think the bland diet can be our friend. Um, you know, if it's more digestible, um, that might kind of just lessen the work on the GI tract and slow down motility. Otherwise, I often am kind of experimenting with a probiotic or with a little bit of psyllium fiber. 
Okay. I would say neither of those are necessarily a magic bullet for every patient, but sometimes that psyllium can kind of add a little bit of bulk to the stool. I always do start kind of lower on the dosing because um, you can imagine just a ton big influx of fiber can result in things we don't want like gas, flatulence, bloating, things like that. So fiber can be your friend. And then let's say we're getting into like day four or five. The dog seems well, seems happy. It's eating, it's bouncing around, but it's like having to go out in the middle of the night. I am not um, opposed to having them try a dose of Imodium, loperamide, mm-hmm. and seeing if that can sort of stop, break the cycle by slowing down motility in that distal gut and seeing if that can kind of reset things. But I do think probably the most important thing is to let owners know kind of a realistic expectation and realize, okay, your dog had liquid diarrhea yesterday. It's probably not going to go back to a fecal score of two tomorrow. It's going to take Mm -hmm. some time for things to reset. So, you know, let's try the blend diet. I'll give you this probiotic. Maybe we'll even also deworm them. But just try to stay with us and not panic in that immediate 72 hours because, you know, things were really bad. It's going to take a little bit of time for that gut to recover and reset itself. Yeah. Okay. I, this, all, this all makes sense. I, we're, we're getting short on time, but I have to ask you this. You didn't even mention the old standard metronidazole. Sure. Uh, t- talk to me a little bit about, about that. Like, cause this is something I think a lot about. There's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of us sort of started our careers, you, like that was the go-to for yes. diarrhea. We're thinking a lot more about anim- anim- antibacterial stewardship now, things like that. Uh, I think it's interesting that, that it, it never passed your lips. Uh, what, what, where, is there a line for that for you? Are you are you like, no, I'm pretty much kind of past this. Where Do antibiotics play into therapy for you at, at all? And if so, at what point? Yeah, they do. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, never use antibiotics. They're categorically horrible. No, antibiotics can be life-saving. However, I think, um, you know, we are clinicians, we're the experts in the room with the owner. So we're going to explain to them what are triggers that we're going to reach for the antibiotic. And I think we can kind of reduce and kind of hone in on the cases that might really need it versus using it as kind of like a blanket anti-diarrheal drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that would be because at the end of the day, the vast majority of these patients do not have a bacterial enteritis that requires um, this kind of big bludgeon of a drug, metronidazole, or even tylosin. It's really going to wipe out pretty much all of the anaerobic bacteria in the gut. And most of those bacteria are actually beneficial to the patient. So when might I, I would say in general, I'm not reaching for antibiotics in acute diarrhea or vomiting cases because I am concerned Maybe, yeah, it stops the GI motility. It makes the stool more normal, maybe temporarily. I think it does help. Um, and we have some placebo-controlled studies to say it would shorten the duration of diarrhea. Other studies show it's no different than placebo or probiotic. But when might I actually think a dog truly needs it? I think that would be in your sick dog. You get that CBC. The dog is neutropenic. Oh, yeah, 100% that dog is going to get antibiotics because they can't protect themselves. However, Potentially, they need something more broad spectrum that would get more kind of gram negative coverage and gram positive, like a clavamox, um, instead of just going for the anaerobes with metronidazole. Otherwise, I would say, yeah, signs of sepsis, signs of shock, and or is there something about the patient that makes me think they're not going to be able to defend themselves besides neutropenia? So the fever, 
Are they diabetic? Are they on a lot of immunosuppressive drugs? I would say otherwise, though, I'm going to try to spare them from that kind of big insult on the gut microbiome by kind of withholding antibiotics and treating with more things that have a less potential to do harm. Because I would say, yeah, potentially the metronidazole helps. And then five days later, they're totally fine. I just worried, have we now created a more unstable microbiome? But then they're back in a month later and then they're back three months later. Is that something that we kind of set the stage for because of all these repeated insults to the microbiome? I don't have a study to tell you that. Some evidence that people would suggest that could be a risk factor for later in the life problems. But I would say let's try to use them when we need them and rely more on diet, fiber, probiotics, hydration, and see if we can reduce our use of those kind of indiscriminate use of antibiotics. Dr. Allison Manchester, you are amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Real fast, are there uh, are there any favorite resources that you have for people who are interested in this topic uh, that you would point us to? Yeah. So um, as we kind of talked about in the top of the hour with the new book um, from Purina, the Clinical Nutrition Handbook, I think that has a lot of short chapters with kind of really practical advice. You know, sometimes you do want to sit back on your couch and read something super detailed and science heavy, but this book I think is really a nice practice guideline um, and goes into more specific topics like colitis, like um, regurgitation, like acute pancreatitis. So um, I'm excited for that to come out. I often will admit I go on VIN and look at kind of conference proceedings because I find a lot of really practical and concise to the point information from experts that's really up to date. So those are the kind of two places I would look. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Um, where can people follow you? Where can they uh, Where can they send you questions if they have them? Yeah. Um, and I always love to hear from people about their cases, even if you, know, you say, hey, what you said, I do something totally different. Honestly, I learn a ton from that sort of debate and conversation. So you could find me through Colorado State's website and just my email would be allison.manchester at colostate.edu. And that's A-L-I-S-O-N. Um, and I would really, I love hearing from people. I have a few clinical trials currently enrolling. So if you have any patients in the kind of Northern Colorado front range area, um, don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Thanks so much. Guys, thanks for being here. Take care of yourselves. Thanks so much. See you. And that's what we got for you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks again to Purina Institute for making this possible and also for their handbook of canine and feline clinical nutrition. Guys, link to grab that for free in the show notes. You don't want to miss it. It's a wonderful resource, something great that they're doing for the profession. So anyway, check it out. I'll talk to you later on. Have a great day.